Welcome to In the Elements. Smith. And I'm Becky DePodwin. Welcome to the second season of In the Elements. We are calling the season The Wrath of the Tropics. The past two hurricane seasons have been filled with storms that have changed the lives of thousands and thousands of people. This season on In the Elements, we want to tell the stories of those people. When we originally set out to make the season, we were going to focus on the 2017 hurricane season. But after Hurricanes Florence and Michael this season, 2018, we decided to add a few more episodes to the docket. So this introductory episode will be a little different than the ones that follow. Immediately after Hurricane Florence hit the southeastern United States, we decided to throw together a conversation with three active members of the Weather Enterprise that directly felt the impact of Florence. It was a lively back and forth, uh, and really we just got them together, turned on the mic, and let them talk. Uh, Joining that conversation was Sarah Watson, a Coastal Climate and Resilience Specialist for the South Carolina Sea Grant Consortium and the Carolinas Integrated Sciences and Assessments. You can follow her on Twitter at BySarahWatson. Chris Jackson, who runs the South Carolina Weather page on Facebook, also dropped by. You can follow him on Twitter at ChrisJacksonSC, as in South Carolina, their abbreviation of South Carolina. Uh, And finally, we were joined by Dr. Jessica Whitehead, the Coastal Hazards Adaptation Specialist from North Carolina Sea Grant. Her Twitter handle is at JCWClimate, and she has a lot of great insight to offer, so highly recommend following her. So let's jump right into it. Here is a lightly edited version of that awesome in-depth conversation. what you do and kind of what your stake is in this topic or the several topics that we're going to cover, which is, you know, crisis and risk communication, uh, discussing evacuations, touching on Florence and everything that happened with that, um, why people evacuate and do not, emergency management, meteorology, all of the above. I think we're going to cover a lot, Um, but just your name, what you do, and maybe what you would like to discuss and why. Um, so we'll start with Chris. Oh, well, thanks for, got, for having me, guys. My name is uh, Chris Jackson. I'm from Columbia, South Carolina. Uh, I spent 15 years as a firefighter, urban search and rescue technician with a FEMA task force. I've uh, got real world experience and, you know, uh, I guess crisis response and disaster response, stuff like that. Um, currently, uh, I left the fire department in November of 2017, last year. And decided I wanted to, you know, take on weather full time because weather's always been, you know, my biggest passion. And you know, going forward from that, you know, I've been blogging a, a, a bunch on Facebook, you know, across all social platforms and stuff like that. Uh, tr- uh, trying to give me a degree in meteorology or you know, weather forecasting, something along those lines. And uh, uh, joined the Carolina Weather Group a few months ago, and you know, been with those guys, and those guys have been awesome. You know, just trying to bring more awareness, and and you know more awareness to the weather warnings and you know why you should heat them and things of that nature 
Right. Uh, my name is Sarah Watson, and I am the Coastal Climate and Resilience Specialist for South Carolina Sea Grant and the Carolinas Integrated Sciences and Assessments. Um, I've been in South Carolina for almost exactly one year, uh, and my interest in this topic is that um, I, I'm interested in study risk communication, and my very big interest is trying to help people like Chris and Becky and Jess and everybody within the weather climate enterprise communicate risks and and to some extent the crisis uh, of the you know the immediate imminent emergency better uh so that the messages are getting to the places where they they need to be and the people are doing what the the actions that they need to do so um uh prior to all of my my time my, my little bit of time in south carolina um i was in new jersey for about 10 years where i was um, the uh, Press of Atlantic City's uh, Environment and Hurricane Sandy Recovery Reporter. And that experience working on the ground uh, just before and after Hurricane Sandy it's, is why I'm really here, because I saw that up close and personal for how all of those individual communication challenges just began to unfold and tried to help figure out ways that we could uh, start bridging those gaps. Hey y'all, I'm Jess Whitehead. I am the Coastal Communities Hazards Adaptation Specialist for North Carolina Sea Grant, which is the nice, confusing way that we say I help people use weather and climate information throughout North Carolina's coast, uh, really our coastal plain at this point, and help them use it to make better decisions. What better is, we sort of leave it up to them. I'm sort of the complete opposite of Sarah and Chris. I started off with an academic background doing absolutely nothing useful in terms of applications. Uh, I, I've got a master's in meteorology and a PhD in geography, both from Penn State. I grew up in South Carolina, so my first um, weather communication experience from a long distance was actually Hurricane Hugo in 1989. And it's sort of ironic that 29 years later, that's exactly what I was doing during Hurricane Florence. I was dealing during the storm with everything from following what our NOAA partners and the weather service were getting out from their briefings, what was going to emergency management, what kind of information our stakeholders with North Carolina Sea Grant were interested in. Um, and then beginning to get into, did people evacuate? Who, where were rescues happening? How does recovery begin? What about these spontaneous civilian groups that emerge in recovery? Uh, on the side, I'm also uh, currently a lecturer for Georgetown University's Emergency and Disaster Management Program online. I developed the first course for them on climate adaptation and emergency and disaster management, which is currently ongoing this fall a lot on your plate, Jess. I'm not sure when I actually sleep. Goodness. Okay, so I think first I would just like to touch on Hurricane Florence and what your guys' big takeaways are. And I know this is probably going to get pretty involved, but I figure it's a good jumping off point because there's there was a lot that happened in Florence. Um, so whatever your your biggest takeaways that you want people to know and understand about what happened in the Carolinas um, I think we should talk about that. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll start it off, you know, just, uh, you know, I've been in South Carolina resident my entire life also. And, and, you know, Hugo was my first experience as a hurricane and, you know, really in, in my lifetime, other than maybe Floyd in like, 99, uh, Florence maybe presented the, the most clear and present danger, you know, to the South Carolina coastline that I can remember. And, 
you know, the biggest thing I can probably take away from it is, you know, better communication between all, you know, all different realms of between emergency management, media, National Weather Service. I think National Weather Service and, you know, a lot of folks did a, a really phenomenal job with the communications a part of it. I believe, you know, there's a lot of people that's getting really caught up in, you know, uh, the Saffir Simpson scale. You know, it's, it's only a cat one. <laughs> but, the you know, the, the, the message the whole time was, you know, it's not going to be so much of the rain as, or the wind as it is the rain. And so, that, you know, that's one of my biggest takeaways from it because here we are, I mean, what uh, – we're 16 days into this now, and the Waccamaw River in Conway is still two feet over its all-time record crest in, from, from Matthew in 2016. Yeah, I waded through part of the news here in, in Raleigh, North Carolina, this morning on my run. Um, so we're some of that is from uh, releases upstream here that are now able to, from uh, Falls Lake, take place because of the storm. But um, I, I want to echo that, I, and I think – I. I was trying to go back in my phone here. There, there was there was a, a moment in time, and I, I have to say that North Carolinians were a bunch of pirates, right? And I we it, we we faced down some storms, and basically meme roasted this thing. And at one point, I think I remembered uh, sending it to Sarah in real time. Let it go down in history that North Carolina single-handedly single-handedly managed to meme rose to Category Four hurricane off course. Well, that one didn't age very well, and so I, I think we absolutely we need to get better about how do we message beyond the wind category of a storm. I was sitting on the weather service briefings and what was going out to emergency management at the time. Uh, also following through what North Carolina emergency management was pushing out there. And it's not that our weather service and NOAA partners and emergency management weren't saying this. It's that people weren't understanding what that meant. And people really did sort of breathe a sigh of relief and miss the rest of the sentence coming out of the weather and, and climate community that, Hey, there's water with this thing. It's going to be an inland flood. It's going to be an inland flood. And, I think that that's one big thing. I think that the other takeaway that I have from this storm is when we are talking about disasters of the geographic scale of Florence and the spatial scale of Florence. So big footprint from, you know, down East Carteret County, inland to Fayetteville, all the way down to Ori and Georgetown in terms of space. And then in terms of a, you know, event that lasts going into its third week now, we've got to think about how we enable evacuation that matches the scale of that disaster. We had people in coastal North Carolina who were afraid to leave the coast because where do you go inland that's going to be safe? Um, We have people who quite frankly can't afford to leave, don't know where they're going. There's people in coastal North Carolina who've never been to Winston-Salem. And that's at one point where we were evacuating people too. I can't begin to imagine how frightening that is, especially when you know it could be weeks before you're back into your home. So I think those were kind of my two big takeaways so far. Dr. Whitehead, I'd like like to add on to that because I would say a lot of the same down in South Carolina. You know, there's a lot of people along the coast uh, you know, with Governor McMaster on, on, on the Tuesday before 
Florence impacted, you know, South Carolina, North Carolina, you know, evacuated the entire coastline, you know, all zones for full, you know, full evacuation. And I think that threw a lot of people off. And, you know, me personally, just from my Facebook uh, blog that I do about, you know, the weather here locally in South Carolina, I was just getting so many messages, you know, from people saying, you know, why are we evacuating Hilton Head when the storm's going to hit, you know, the outer banks? Because, you know, at at the time there was a lot of, I guess, you know, some of the model data and some of the thoughts around the weather community was it, you know, it's going to be more of a Wilmington up to uh, maybe Moorhead City, Outer Banks, uh, Hatteras kind of storms. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that was really, really tough, especially down in South Carolina. I know the government or the governor uh, caught a lot of slack uh, from from a lot of people. Uh, I know it turned into a little bit of a political thing here in some of the papers, which, you know, I, I really just I don't like to see that in, in the middle of a, a crisis, especially a natural disaster. You know, it's not time to play politics, per se. But, uh, yeah, that's something I definitely saw also. So am I allowed to have more than two lessons? Because my list is really long. Because <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I actually have a question. I think I'm the only one on this web, web uh, podcast that was under an evacuation order, correct? Yeah. Yes, so you were. I, I have a very different perspective because, one, I study this stuff. I try to teach people how to do this better. And then I was the subject of the, you know, I was the target audience. And um, I, I, I kind of still just, my mind is still kind of exploding at all of the things that I learned, but then all of the incredible frustrations that I got that I never expected. Um, and so going down that theme is the noise that just, went on social media from people who were not in the area and not in the um, evacuation areas or even the areas where people would be going to. Um, It was like fighter jet level and it just kept getting louder and louder and louder to the point where I was actually noting on social media that I could not find the information I needed to make a personal decision. And on top of that, the hyperbole in language and the extreme lack of geographic knowledge. Uh, two days after the evacuation order had been issued, I was getting texts and phone calls of increasingly dire, oh my God, you have to get out of there from people who have never been through a hurricane and never lived at the coast and had no concept how big the Carolinas are geographically, uh, begging me to evacuate uh, when there were very real reasons for why I had made the decision not to leave. And I had, you know, made a multi-tiered plan that in the event that things were getting really bad down here, uh, I would go to certain places. And if I saw, you know, enough time ahead of time where it was really going to get bad, I would leave. I had a place to go. Um, but the lack of respect and understanding for why people make decisions the way they do was shocking. And, and I had seen that before. And, and I think I had previously been on the other side of, gosh, why don't people leave? And then, I, you know, I started understanding why people don't leave. And then this is the first time where I was in a situation where um, I, I was recently diagnosed, I guess, about a year and a half ago with severe food allergies and severe celiac disease, where being in a gluten-free kitchen or a non-gluten-free environment could be actually more risky for me than going through the storm. And so... I was making personal decisions based on a whole lot of things, talking to all of my neighbors, what was everything, you know, what were the thresholds, what had happened in my neighborhood, and the second guessing that I got from people who really should know what my job is and that I do know how to make an accurate risk assessment. Um, 
And so that, uh, that noise and that constant anxiety, uh, I think I noted by Thursday, like I am absolutely exhausted and the storm hasn't even gotten near us yet. Um, and so that's the personal side of it. Uh, the professional side of it is coming down to how do you communicate these increasingly more challenging historic events where we're trying to communicate impacts that you've never seen before and that we're trying to compare to things you've seen, but really you've never seen this before. Um, how do you account for the length of time for a slow moving and a long lasting disaster? Um, that really is is challenging and and you know especially with the evacuation orders that were issued in South Carolina we knew Monday night before the storm even made landfall that uh we were going to be told to leave and then that just kept going and going and going the sl- the models for the storm kept slowing down uh the timing of the storm because the storm just really had no steering currents it really couldn't go anywhere and so you know they're trying to to communicate this challenge this really difficult storm to communicate and then also the length of time that it's going to be an issue and as much rain as we knew was going to fall was going to fall i don't think anybody really comprehended how long the flooding would last especially in south carolina and you know right now we're kind of seeing that um it's not going to be as bad in georgetown as had been initially thought, but we're still forgetting, you know, things are going back to normal, but we're still forgetting that, uh, like Chris said, the Waccamaw River is still two feet above the previous record. And and that water is going to take at least a week, if not two, to go fully down back to normal. And then recovery begins. And so you've almost got this exhaustive um, situation before recovery begins. And how does that affect recovery? And then just the observation with the level fair with the euro everybody trusts the euro even though the euro is a model it's not a forecast so those are like the really big ones for me sorry that was a big pile no 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 i, I like that sarah I, I think you said something that's really important that that maybe maybe might be the most important takeaway for for people i guess going forward to understand is that you know it lies with personal responsibility and understanding you know a risk assessment you know if, if you're in a flood prone area that especially down in charleston you know with uh, afternoon sea breeze thunderstorm that gets two inches of rain and you got water in your yard you know with the possibility of a foot or more rain that, that might be something you really need to take into consideration and so it, it lies in your own decision making process and i think that's something a lot of people in, in social media times have forgotten how to do and i hate to say it like that but it just kind of is what it is well it's also the the interjection of people into the conversation who have no experience with this but they're watching from i mean and i was commenting about the whole you know i'm talking about grandmothers in ohio or my family out in california (laughs) and like they literally have no concept of what you know they think storm surge and they think it's a wall of water coming over everything, which may be the case, but also maybe not. So, um, or they think wind and they think, oh my gosh, a tropical storm force wind. Okay, let's be honest. Don't be driving out in a tropical storm force wind. That's really kind of dumb, but it's not the worst thing on the planet. So it's this lack of knowledge about uh, the outsiders, you know, calling and, and freaking out that you're not leaving for um you know and i feel kind of flip i feel kind of uh kind of like a hypocrite talking about it like this but it's also just talking to my neighbors where 
on one hand, I had the professional shaming of it. Why wasn't I leaving? But I also had the local shaming by my neighbors that if you left, why, why, why were you leaving? That's such a newcomer thing. Why were you doing that? So um, it was a really, it, it, there's just so much complexity to all of this. And there's just so much challenge. And then we, we, we all see these little tiny snippets on social media and we think we know everything. Yeah, there, there's this huge assumption that evacuation is risk-free, and it's not. I remember, you know, how, how is somebody going to judge, for example, their experience in Hurricane Floyd, where, you know, I, I was in Charleston and Floyd, we evacuated. I was sort of the local winner by it only taking six and a half hours to get my mom to Columbia. And there were people who sat on the interstate for 24 hours in Hurricane Floyd in 1999. There were people who died during the evacuation. Here in North Carolina, I know people who left down East Carteret County, got a hotel in Rocky Mount, assuming that they would be safe, which is quite a ways inland, and then ended up requiring water rescue from the hotel in Rocky Mount. And so all of these past experiences that evacuation is not risk-free also get evaluated as someone is simultaneously looking at information about this particular storm. Yeah, I mean, I talked to my neighbors who grew, I, I live on James Island, uh, just south of the lower peninsula of Charleston. And my neighbors went through Hugo as a kid, they did not evacuate. And they told me in very exquisite, intimate detail of what that was like, and what it was like when they got up and what they did. And every they remembered so much of it. And so they said it was so awful that when Floyd came, they were like, yeah, we're leaving. We're, we're out of here. And they said that the they were remembered in exquisite, intimate detail what the evacuation of Floyd was like. And the end result was we'd rather go through Hugo again. We would ra not rather we, we'd actually rather go through the most terrifying thing we'd ever been through because the evacuation process was so challenging and so horrible for us. Could, we, could you, Ty guys, touch on how you feel the forecast and risks were communicated by meteorologists? Like, how did we do a good job? Did we explain things well? How was it perceived? What can we do better? Um, I'll, I'll, I'll shoot at this one first. I think the National Weather Service here locally did a really, really good job in, in trying to, you know, explain the risk to, to people. Um, I, I do want to be a, a little bit critical of some of the folks on TV here. You know, on Monday evening, but before you know the, the governor issued an evacuation order, I, I've got pictures of it still right now on my phone. But uh, there was a lot of people in the in the TV segment of, of you know of meteorology, if you will, like you know broadcast meteorology, uh, of really downplaying the effects. You know, had you know, minimal impacts so of maybe you know three to six. Um, maybe eight inches of rain at most. And, you know, you see that in less than 12 hours, you can make a decision uh, based on, on an evacuation order. And I think, I think that was maybe really tough for a lot of people to understand when, when the National Weather Service and emergency managers are, are looking at the risk involved and, and, you know, trying to convey that risk. Like, you know, if, if this really comes straight at us, it's, it's going to be a lot worse than a, um, four to five inches of rain and, you know, a little bit of wind. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to try to not get, get too deep into it, um, partially because I know my name has potentially been put in to be on the, the NOAA service assessment team. 
But I can certainly say from the North Carolina standpoint, I, I made a point of rotating through the partner briefings that were delivered a couple of times a day by National Weather Service in Newport Moorhead City, National Weather Service in Wilmington, and National Weather Service in Raleigh. And what I saw from those was a very consistent messaging of what the inland flood potential was going to be. And that that was a significant event. You know, they had the graphics. I was going in and personally sharing these on, you know, I'm, I'm a mom. So, of course, there are all of these moms Facebook groups that could probably be another podcast in and of itself, you know, sharing that information. Uh, but the interesting thing was watching other people judge that information compared to what they must have been seeing elsewhere. Um, I didn't see a lot of real-time TV coverage uh partially because I was basically rotating through National Weather Service briefings. But, um, you know, there, there were people here. I'm, I'm in Garner, North Carolina. There were people in Garner who evacuated in Raleigh. And they were not necessarily people who knew that they were close to a floodplain. I mean, I was answering questions on Nextdoor about, I heard somebody on TV say something that the storm surge was going to reach here. And I had to step in and go, no, that's not how this works. The the surge will affect those inland communities, those riverine communities. But up here, we're looking at the rainfall. So it does make me wonder, and it'll be interesting to see in the service assessment phase, who who was communicating what, but then also how were those information, was that information interpreted and what happened when people were also looking at other sources of information, especially those that were not NOAA resources or, you know, rep, what I would consider reputable weather companies? So I kind of did what um, Jess did, which was talk to, I, one, I didn't follow, uh, I didn't really watch TV, but I, I was really interested in how people were talking about it. And, and like her, I kind of need to be a little bit careful because my name also has been floated to be um, potentially incorporated in the, um, the NOAA service assessment. Um, but I'm always really interested in how people are talking about things, whether that's on Facebook or whether that's in person. And I ended up spending a lot of time getting to know my neighbors and getting to know kind of how they were perceiving things. And the vast majority of them after a certain time had just literally tuned out. Um, and, and that was really interesting on one end, but also a little scary because had things shifted differently, then could they have been caught unaware? I don't know. Um, but one of the big things that th- they told me was that they found that the increasingly dire warnings that they were seeing, um, you know, th- th- people were almost assuming that they didn't know how to read a map or that they didn't know their backyard. And so the the increasingly dire warnings were not matching what they were experiencing, what they were going to see in their backyard. And they were constantly getting frustrated at the emergency management interactions with that kind of information. And, um, you know, you know, it's it's really hard that you can give a really great forecast and you can do what you can to communicate it and you can create as many products as you can to to create it or to communicate it. But in the end, if you don't know how people are interpreting it, are you, that message is not quite getting to do what it needs to do. And so 
that perception is individual and it's going to always be slightly different. And I I actually am at a point and and I think I might've even tweeted this of wondering, are we trying to give too much information? And that is the noise that we're putting out there so much that people can't sort through the information to get what they need. And then, you know, like Jess, I had also noticed that, uh, or no, like Chris, I had actually noticed that the, you know, the communication from, from various uh, broadcast meteorologists was very different, at least initially. And it was almost like they were downplaying the potential for, for effects. And, you know, in the end, in some places they were correct that the effects weren't really that bad, but in the other places, um, I think they downplayed it to their detriment to the point where it was almost a surprise when certain things happened after the storm. Uh, Sarah, I absolutely agree with you, um, especially on the downplaying part. And that's something that a lot of people up here have communicated with me over the years. You know, is, is, you know, what you see on TV is often really conservative forecasting from the weather side. And, and it, like you said, maybe some downplaying. But then again, you have emergency managers, which have a totally different role in this. And, you know, their role is to keep people safe. That's what it all you know, boils down to is, is you know, looking at the, the risk benefit analysis of all of this. You know, if, if I don't choose to evacuate Charleston, even though five days away, this hurricane it you know is on the quote unquote edge of the cone of uncertainty. You know, if I don't choose to do this and all of a sudden something happens and there's a drastic shift south with a potential cat four, cat five hurricane, that's a huge, huge like you know, change in ball game <laughs> because you go from evacuating a lot of people and you know being really proactive to you know potentially not doing that and then having the worst case scenario happen that, you know, it does go to them people that weren't able to uh, get the early warning to evacuate and stuff like that. You know, I just think that's, I think that's one of the biggest uh, things with, uh, you know, the communication side of it is you got everybody sending these messages out and while they all might want the same effect, they're going to have different effects. And what I, what I mean by that is, you know, emergency managers, they're not there to be your friend. And I know that sounds counterintuitive because you should always have a, a friendship and a good relationship because that's, a, you know, communication, trust, all that stuff goes hand in hand. But at the end of the day, their job is to keep you safe. And, uh, you know, TV media, and I know some might want to throw swords at me for this, but, you know, TV media doesn't have the same objective. You know, they're not, they're not third party. They're not funded by taxpayer dollars to keep people safe and stuff like that. And I just... I, I personally, and it's my own opinion, just think that's really tough to have one message when you got so many different companies and funding sources and stuff like that involved in. So I, I, I think for me, like one for emergency managers making decisions, it's it's really mu- it's really a, a rock and a hard place type situation. It's your damn if you do and your damn if you don't, and you're going to make the decision that your responsibility is is keeping the public safe and that. Um, you know, I, am very glad that I am not responsible for those decisions because they're really difficult. Um, but at the same time, one of the things that I really observed over this was just the, the one, the message consistency among emergency managers was spectacular. It was absolutely, everybody was saying the same thing and it was done really well. The problem is 
that when people don't perceive the threat at the same level of, of uh, threat that is getting communicated to them from the emergency managers, that might be leading to some distrust in there. And so um, I don't really have any opinions on this because for me, I'm still trying to understand this and, and try to figure it out. But um, there's some, there's a disconnect there and, and I'm, it's going to take some time to understand what that disconnect really means to people and whether um, the, the extreme risk aversion is the way to go. Um, or if, you know, I, yeah, I, I, I'm still just, bleh, but it's all about for me, risk perception and risk aversion and, and where that, where that sweet spot is, you know, Absolutely. And, but also the challenge is also communicating the uncertainty and communicating uncertainty is really hard. Absolutely. And, and, and it, it's, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. It's just really hard to do it correctly. And that at the same time, again, everybody's individual risk perception is different and everybody perceives that cone of uncertainty differently. And, and it's, you know, it's hard. Yeah. I mean, I'm so on board with that. I mean, you know, to me, there's two different things at play here and everybody, I, I, I invite your opinion on this and tell me if, I, if I'm wrong in my thinking or just, you know, the way I perceive it. But I think emergency managers have to go based off of threats, you know, threats and risk. You know, the threat is the hurricane may hit us and the risk it brings is potential catastrophic damage. And then you have uh, other entities involved that are more concerned with uh, the, the actual spatial location of, of the hurricane making landfall and not so much the greater uh, threat and risk you know, of, across the, the bigger area, you know, just, it's really hard to, to explain what I'm, what I'm trying to think here, but basically in a nutshell, you know, the, the threat and the risk is that, you know, Charleston could have got hit by Florence hands down. And, you know, that's something they have to take into effect and, 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 you know, put into the plan to keep people safe. And then other folks and, you know, are more concerned about the, the, the chances of this happening, I guess, are only 5%, but that 5% still means something to an emergency manager. Yeah, it may be a low probability, but a very high impact kind of event. There we go. Yeah, it, in North Carolina, perfect. things get a little bit interesting. Uh, backing up a little bit, evacuation works differently here than it does in South Carolina. And there was a little bit of quarterbacking going on during the event when McMaster issued a evacuation order and nobody was hearing the same kind of evacuation order out of North Carolina. North Carolina's emergency management law is a little bit weird. Either the governor can order evacuations, but it has to be with the concurrence of the entire 10 member council of state, which is Lieutenant governor, attorney general, varying other heads of agencies and other statewide elected officials, not of whom all share the same party or by local county officials in consultation with emergency management. So this is why usually you don't see a gubernatorial evacuation in North Carolina. It's usually a county by county decision. Um, in this case, we actually did finally, I think it was, I wanna say it was Tuesday, or late Tuesday or Wednesday, actually see the governor tell everybody off of the barrier islands in North Carolina has to go. Um, for us, I knew it was really dicey on whether or not Ocracoke and Hatteras were going to see an event. 
And the, the interesting thing that was in play for us as well was the week before was a King Tide event. And those usually aren't a big deal for us on the sound side. Those Albemarle Pamlico sounds are not themselves terribly tidal. They're more of a wind-driven kind of regime. But on the ocean front, yeah, that, that can be a huge difference. And so we were beginning to see overwash. I, I was having folks on Hatteras text me pictures of water coming under the dunes on Highway 12 Monday, Tuesday. So those officials had to make those decisions earlier. And I've talked to a couple of folks on Ocracoke who were going, why did Ocracoke make the decision so early? It's so weird. And, you know, Dare actually beat them too at this time. Ocracoke is a challenge. So Ocracoke is part of Hyde County and it is only accessible by ferry or by boat. So they have a five-day clearance time. And that is not set by the number of, you know, people on the island. It's how many seats are on the ferry compared to how many seats are on, uh, how many people are on the island. And so that makes evacuation on our outer banks extremely challenging. And I think because we've had situations in the past, um, it was a, a quirk that we were actually there doing a storm planning meeting when Arthur spun up in 2014 and so I, I was actually trying to hold a meeting about long-term planning for hurricane, storm surge, flooding, uh, sea level rise. And the county manager was having to go in and out of the room trying to decide whether or not to evacuate Ocracoke for the 4th of July weekend. Um, so a sheer accident that I was witness to some of, some of those things that were going through their heads. But Dare County, too. I was on Hatteras the week before the storm hit. And they've had instances where they didn't have a visitor evacuation in place, mainly because the storm spun up so fast. And if you can't get people off in time, sometimes it's easier to just ask them to prepare to shelter in place. Um, where visitors were mostly all right, but they were hauling flooded cars off the island for weeks. So I think there's a little bit more forgiving of a culture, certainly on the Outer Banks, in terms of evacuation. They've learned the hard way that at the very least, it's easier to have the visitors off. Now, the longtime residents, they're not going anywhere, even if it's a Cat 4. And so that's a different issue. But, um, you know, definitely in terms of the event here, you know, it then becomes how do you tell people to evacuate? Where can you get them to? And do they have the ability to get there? And these, these were all things that are huge in Eastern North Carolina because we do have a lot of people who are working class or poor. It costs money to evacuate. It costs a lot of money to evacuate if you've got to get all the way to Raleigh, which is in some cases a three-hour drive on a good day. Uh, Winston-Salem is another two hours beyond that for a lot of places. So you do have to have enough resources to be able to evacuate. And a lot of people don't. And so that comes into the equation here too, especially as we're talking about what happens on those mainland and riverine areas when we're talking about evacuation. I totally understand that. Um, I'm just kind of curious. I don't want to put anyone on the spot and, and just get maybe the group's collective uh, thoughts on it. But, uh, you know, I just think from a communication standpoint, uh, just like, you know, when, you, when 
you were young and you used to try to, you know, understand how communication where you'd tell someone a message and get them to tell, you know, three other people. By the time the message got back to you, uh, the message may have been totally different. And I just wonder if, if, if by leaving it in the hands of all the local entities and municipalities up there in North Carolina versus, you know, the governor making a decision, if, if that, you know, has a negative impact on, on the population, you know, the citizens of North Carolina, I, you know, I just don't, I, I'm not, I think the best way to say it is I, I don't know how people it affects people up there because, you know, I, I live down here. I'm just kind of curious. Yeah, and I don't know either. It was strange for me to get used to coming up here from South Carolina where, you know, governor tells you to get out, you get out or you don't. And you have a hurricane party, whatever. But, you know, here, it, in fact, there had been some noises coming out of emergency management that they were finally going to implement a know your zone program for 2019. But I hadn't really seen ideas on how that was going to work in terms of changing a messaging. But to me, I think what we have to think about with events like, you know, we, we were talking about Floyd, but really for us, I mean, Matthew in 2016 was another one where you have this one-two punch of the coastal event and then the larger magnitude, longer magnitude inland flood event that you really have to think about what evacuation looks like as a system. And that's, I think, hard to do county by county. I mean, some counties made decisions to evacuate. Some told people to, to shelter in place. And it really sort of depends on the place as to whether or not that was the right call. I mean, do you, do you set a zone on 100-year floodplains? Well, those, number one, the 100-year floodplain doesn't actually imply that you're only going to flood once in 100 years. And number two, we know that that floodplain mapping methodology does not really include, you know, certainly for coastal areas, it doesn't include rainfall. So it doesn't include stormwater management and stormwater infrastructure in terms of the modeling. It's just the return frequency of the magnitude of that river flood event and not necessarily looking at local land-based impacts of rainfall that we know also come into where the flood occurs, that we have thousands of homes, I'm guessing is going to be the final total, that flooded that were outside of the special flood hazard areas. So I, I can't begin to think for us, I mean, it, it's just, it's a big ask of these rural counties to say, all right, everybody in Hyde County or everybody in Tyrrell County, you're zone one and you're going to evacuate. But for you to get away from the inland flood event, you've got to go all the way to Raleigh and have enough money to stay there. Um one thing and, and one big reason that the culture, especially on the Outer Banks, is to not leave is that we've done this enough in North Carolina to know that once the water goes down, it's a race against time for the mold. Because what you do and how fast you get in there to mitigate the mold is the complete difference between being able to save your structure and it being a total loss. And that can be, you know, I, I'm thinking here of the unfortunate case of Core Sound Waterfowl Museum on Harker's Island, 
in Florence. They actually came through, they're elevated enough that Ty didn't come in through the floor, but they had a lot of places where it, it seeped in around the roof. And so they went in, I think, Saturday, maybe Sunday to the museum down there. And so, you know, things, things were wet, but they didn't think that a whole lot of damage had taken place. So folks went home and dealt with homes that had flooded and you know, fallen trees. They had no power for a week. Got back into the museum a couple of days later, later and that mold had completely wicked all the way up the walls. And so there's a lot of damage there inside the museum and a lot of rebuilding that is going to have to take place. So a day or two between when the water goes down and you get in there and start cutting out drywall makes all the difference. And we know that flood not even flood insurance, if you can afford to carry it, is going to make you whole. FEMA's not going to make you whole. The state's not going to make you whole. You are probably never going to get enough money to completely replace that structure. The people who do are the ones who are, have the knowledge and the capacity to be able to, to appeal. And so part of the culture here is you know where the high ground is. You know where to stage your local supplies. You know, they do this on Hatteras, actually. Um, the fire station's elevated. They put all of their critical supplies up. A lot of the farmers will actually lift critical equipment, like, you know, bobcats, that kind of thing, up onto roofs so that they can go and lift them back down when they, they need to. And you, you stay. You ride it out in those hide spots so that, Anything that's flooded, your neighbor that's flooded, you can get in there and you can cut that drywall the next day. So it, it's, it's, I'm not sure I've even answered the question or that I even had an answer for it, but it, it's definitely, it, it's, North Carolina has a very complex coastal environment. It's not just the beachfront, it's not just the dunes, it's those inland coastal plains and the swamps and the rivers that go tens and hundreds of miles inland that all come into play when you have an event with the infall rainland potential like we had with Florence. If you like what you heard today, consider giving us a rating or review wherever you're listening. And if you'd like to hear more of these episodes, they're in the feed you're listening to right now, so hit that subscribe button. And finally, we're always looking for stories to tell. So if you have a story that you want to talk to us about where you're in the elements, send us an email at inthealementspod at gmail.com or shoot us a tweet at elementspod on Twitter. Stay tuned to the feed you're listening to now for more episodes in our second season, The Wrath of the Tropics. We'll dive into Michael, Florence, Irma, Harvey, Maria, and maybe even a few other things. So stay tuned. That wraps up this week's episode. For myself and Dakota, thank you for joining us in the elements. Yes, science!